You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. When I was a, a student back at Texas A&M, back in the day, there they are, I knew it. Uh, I, uh, I studied uh, history and philosophy because mostly I, I hate making money. And uh, I, uh, I studied it uh, secondarily because I just love the subject of history. I love um, the history of ideas. I love, and this is kind of nerdy of me, just how an idea can shape a world, shape a culture, shape a person, change uh, the face of history. And so I, I studied that. And I remember my favorite course when I was uh, back at school uh, was a class I took uh, by Dr. George, and it was 19th century philosophy. Huge nerds in there, it was amazing, and uh, we covered kind of all the, the big players uh, of that era. So we covered guys like uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and Karl Marx, and Hegel, and, and of course the dude himself, Frederick Nietzsche. I think we got a picture of him. Uh, that's Fred, old Freddy. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche is my favorite Atheist. I don't know if you can have a favorite atheist, but uh, I have one, and it's him. If they were baseball cards, he's my Mickey Mantle. I'd have him in a glass box. I, I love this guy. Now, I don't love him because he's an atheist. Uh, what I appreciate about him is he was so utterly consistent in his atheism. And I have just a ton of respect for that. Like, his consistency was profound. So, he... He argued essentially this to sort of the intellectual uh, elites of his day. You cannot say that there is no God, like you guys say, and also care for the poor. You cannot do that. You, you cannot say there is no God and prize and value self-sacrifice and love. It's not fitting. It, it doesn't work. All of that only makes sense, Nietzsche argued, if there is a God in heaven who did make mankind in his image and bestow on them dignity and worth and value. That's the only way it makes sense. But there is no God, he said. That's, that was his whole treatise, right? God is dead and we killed him. That's Nietzsche's favorite line. That's a famous line from his book. And if God is dead, that means the only virtue left for us to grab as humans is the virtue of the acquisition of power. My pursuit of power over you. Can I have power over you? That's the only thing left, the survival of the fittest. Because if we're all just stardust, then why should it matter to me if that bag of stardust is suffering today? It shouldn't. There is no God. We killed him. So all that we need to do is live to acquire more and more power. It's, it's wonderfully consistent. Now, it will destroy your life to believe that, but at least you won't be a hypocrite in the end. And, and I really do appreciate it. Now, the interesting thing about Nietzsche's story is, in the end, it, sadly, it did end up destroying the man. By the end of his life, Nietzsche had gone mad, and I don't mean that figuratively. He'd literally gone insane. He'd lost his mind. And by the end of his life, there was a point where his sister, I think we got a picture of his sister, had to uh, trim his mustache situation for him, which given that mustache, uh, he could use all the help he could get. It was, uh, it was a real thing, but he had... He had lost his mind. And my point, when I, when I reflect on Nietzsche's story, I often think about just the fact that we cannot live away from God's presence without it wreaking havoc inside us. 
I think he's a great testament to it. You cannot live away from God's presence without it destroying something. Or, if you want to say it positively, you were made to live before the face of God. You were made to live before the face of God. There's an old Latin phrase, corum Deo. Maybe you've heard that before. And it just means before the face of God. That that's how me and you are, are meant to exist in this world. That we, we live in light of his presence. We live under his presence. We live before the face of God. And the and whole scripture is going to testify to this. You're, you're going to hear it all the time as you read scripture. Uh, Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing beside you. That there is no higher or more supreme goal for me than to just be in your presence. To enjoy you forever. Or you can go to Paul in Colossians. right? Colossians 1.16. All things were made through Jesus and for Jesus, right? You were made, do you know this, for Jesus. Why am I here in this room? Why do I exist? Why has God given me this life? You were made so that you could exist for him, to be in his presence, to live before the face of God. So when that is abandoned, when we say no to that, it doesn't go well. And that's why I find verse 16 of chapter 4 in this passage one of the most haunting verses in all of Scripture. Verse 16, I, I, if you saw my Bible, there's just notes and comments all, all the way around it. Because I just, I think it's so profoundly sad. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He did just what we saw his father Adam do, right, in chapter 3. He hid himself from the presence of the Lord. He did the same thing that Jonah's going to do centuries later. He fled from the presence of the Lord. This is what we do. We weren't built to go away from him, but over and over we do in the scripture. And what scripture is constantly testifying to is this. You and I were meant to live before the face of God. We were meant for that. So when you're coming to something like the genealogy of Cain here in the Bible, it, you are not coming to just a family tree, right? That would be really boring if we just studied a family tree today. That's not what you're coming to. What you're, what you're looking at is an object les lesson of what a civilization would look like away from the presence of God. Can it work? Can we make this thing happen without him? Can we really thrive while abandoning him? Can this thing work? That is, that's kind of the subtext that's running under our passage. So we're going to look at it together. So if you have your Bible, get it out or turn it on. We're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, going all the way through the rest of the chapter, verse 26. Last week, uh, if you remember, if you were here, uh, we looked at uh, just two people. We just looked at the Cain and Abel story, where Cain kills his brother Abel. This week, we're not looking at just two people. We're looking at seven generations of people from Adam down. And we, are, we saw... Uh, last week, how things go on a micro level. Cain killed his brother, Abel. The, the, the first activity we get detailed after the fall is murder from Cain to his brother, Abel. But what, how does that play out in a whole society? That's really what the rest of Genesis 4 is dealing with. What does that look like when that unfolds, not just with one or two people, but with hundreds of people? When that goes, what, what happens? Can we make this thing work? What is civilization like? away from his presence. Three things the passage shows us today, and we're just going to go one by one through them. The first one is this, life away from the presence of God, we're going to see this in the text, is autonomous. It's autonomous. Now, I chose that word uh, carefully because of what that word means 
uh, what, how that's constructed in the Greek. Kelly always makes fun of me because uh, now that I'm studying Greek in school, I'm like, you know, in the Greek, the uh, word is... Uh, but this word actually is really profound when you break it down. It comes from two Greek words, autos, which means self, and namos, which means law, self-law. Autonomy means I am a law unto myself. That nobody makes the rules but me. And what we're going to see unfold in this text is that that's exactly what unfolds in the line of Cain. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of that city after his son Enoch. Now, think back to last week uh, for a moment. Cain kills uh, his brother, and God pronounces a curse over him. Remember that? Do you remember what the curse entailed? Here's one of the elements that that curse entailed. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 4 uh, said this, uh, of chapter 3, I'm sorry. When, no, I'm, back up. It is chapter 4, verse 12. This is when Cain kills his brother. He says this, When you work the ground, Cain, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall, listen, be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That's God's curse pronounced over Cain after he killed his brother. God's curse to Cain is, you're going to wander. You are going you are to be a vagabond. You are going to be a homeless roamer of the earth, and you're never going to stop. Now, I wonder if you feel the tension right now. That was the curse God pronounced on Cain, but what are the first two things Cain does when he left God's presence? The text says he settled in the land of Nod, and he built a city. Cain dug in. God said, you're going to be a wanderer. Cain said, we'll see about that. God said, you're going to be homeless. Cain said, I'm going to plant some roots. That's what I'm doing. I'm digging in deep here. This is not a contrite man. You see that? This is not a, uh, he is not taking his cues from God's commandments right now. This is a man who thinks he is above the pronouncement of God. I will do what I want. He is living autonomously. He is a law unto himself. That's who Cain is. And the whole Bible is going to teach and affirm that this is how we break. Away from God's presence, we become the authority. Right? Because what other option is there? If God is not the authority, who gets to be the boss of me? Well, the only person left is me. I get to be the boss of me. So think about Jonah for a minute. We mentioned him earlier. God commands Jonah to rise and go to Nineveh. And what does he do? He rises and flees to Tarshish. He's autonomous. And then look at Cain. God commands Cain to be a wanderer, and he settles and builds a city. Do you see the pattern? We are autonomous when we get outside from the presence of God. When we stop living before the face of God, we are a law unto ourselves. This is what we do. We remove ourselves from God's authority and we become our own authority. My body, my choice, right? That is the anthem of our culture. No one gets to define me but me. I define my identity. I define my sexuality. It's my truth, right? I, I define me. Someone's going to have to be king around here and it's not going to be you. It will be me. I'm autonomous. It's, uh, do you remember the movie uh, Invictus? 2009, uh, I was in the theaters watching it. it was, uh, uh, Invictus was uh, Morgan Freeman. It was Matt Damon. It was uh, about the rugby uh, international championship during the apartheid. Anybody? Am I just? Okay, that's fine. Uh, anyways, I, I remember watching it in the theater, and it was so close to being a good movie. Uh, but then at the end, the whole, the whole story the, uh, gets framed around this one 
idea. It comes from a, a poem, which is what the movie's titled after, Invictus. The poem's from William Henley, and th this last line sort of rings out throughout the movie, and uh, I was just like, oh, bro. So it's read uh, by Morgan Freeman in that sweet, sweet voice, and he says, uh, here's the poem. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I just remember being in the theater. I was like, oh, Morgan. Morgan, Morgan. <laughs> we were right there, man. We were right there. You missed it. But, but that's, that's us, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, away from God's presence, we become autonomous. It's Imagine by John Lennon, right? The greatest, worst song ever, right? It is Imagine There's No Heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. What are these guys saying? The, I get to make the call. That's what they're saying. What if, what if we lived in a world where it was just you deciding for you? It's autonomy. It's unconqueredness. I will not be mastered. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. That's what we're seeing here. We are looking at an unconquered people as Cain goes on. Now, what's fascinating about this, and you might feel this even right now, you would think that with all that being said, that that would mean that the, the whole human experiment becomes just an abject failure, right? You're telling me there's, there's a line of people that is growing now, and these guys, all they do is just hold their fists up in the sky to God, and you're thinking they're going to create a successful society? No way, right? That's what, what I feel when I read this. It's like, dude, if, if these folks are coming from Cain, we're hosed, right? This isn't going to go well for us. But what's fascinating is the shock of Genesis is that it goes just fine. No, the, the text says. Actually, a ton of amazing stuff gets done through these people. What, what do I mean? This is the second thing we see about life away from God's presence. We're not just autonomous. We're actually wildly accomplished. We're an accomplished bunch. Autonomy and accomplishment. So watch this. Cain has a son named Enoch. And Enoch has a son who consequently has a son who has a son who has a guy named Lamech. Now we're going to get to Lamech in a second. You can't forget Lamech. He, Lamech won't let you forget Lamech. Uh, but the important thing about Lamech here is his sons. He's got three of them, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. That's kind of easy to remember. And as we meet them, we begin to see the origin story of culture and civilization. Look what happens in verse 20. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So Moses is giving us the origin of one aspect of civilization, the rise of animal husbandry. It's the first time we're seeing this here. In agriculture, it, it all began with this man, Jabel. We see a rise in, the, in our, the cultivation of, of resources for human flourishing. That's what we're seeing with this man. His brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see the rise of creative arts all of a sudden. So if you're in here and you just love me, you just love some Mozart or some Lady Gaga, you have Jubal to thank. He's your man. He was the guy who sat down and, and went, you know, if I drill a hole here and here and here and go fit with it, and I've got a band, right? 
And that's, he's the guy who started it, right? We see the rise of music and creative arts. We see the rise of metallurgy and technology. Zilla also bore Tubalcane, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So before this time, there's just a lot of handwork going on, right? A lot of dirty fingernails out there. But this guy comes along, and he figures out how to smelt some things and bend some things and, 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 and shape some things so we can have tools and weapons and uh, structures. And he started the tech industry. That's what this is saying. How, how do I take these raw materials and repurpose them in a way that makes life easier for mankind? That's what he did. It's the rise of technology. So you see the step-by-step, each of these sons is contributing an aspect of culture, of civilization, technology, innovation, metallurgy, music and the arts, animal husbandry, ag science, all these things came from Cain. Let me say that again. Came from Cain, that guy. It came from his line, high-handed, autonomous, I'm a law to myself, Cain. It came from this guy. Now let me take a sidebar for a moment and say this. Sometimes we forget how, how this book, the Bible, was made. It did not float down on a cloud from heaven to us. That's not how we got this thing. It was written by dozens of men over hundreds of years who were, Peter tells us, carried along by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Men wrote this book down. And I say this, this is important because these men are making decisions when they write. They're making decisions about what words go where and what gets put in and what gets taken out. And, and the Holy Spirit is superintending all of it, but he is working through the agency of cogent thinking people to do it. And my point in saying all that nerdy stuff just then is this. Moses didn't have to make Cain's line look so awesome. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't have to insert into this really troublesome genealogy the fact that all of the culture that we experience and civilization and arts and all of the advancement and technology that we have and benefit from came from this guy. But he did. He puts it right here. And I think there's something that, that we need to ask when we see that. And it's this, why did he put that there? What can we learn from this? I think there's a ton of things we can learn from it, but one of them might be this. The doctrine of total depravity. You, you maybe heard that before. It's a theological term that just, that just means that after the fall, human beings are corrupt in such a way that we will never get right with God apart from God intervening and doing something about it. So our corruption is total. We, have, we are totally depraved. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean, apparently, that we can't accomplish many wonderful things. It doesn't mean that. We can make cities and we can organize them and invent things and create governments and cause flourishing. We can do those types of things. We can still accomplish a lot. And sometimes uh, we Christians, we wanna make things more black and white than that, but there's some gray here. There, there is a common grace over mankind that even apart from God and living in his presence, we can do all sorts of stuff. That's what the text is showing us, but but there's a fly in the ointment, right? Because for all our creativity, Moses is, is about to show us there is a corruption that is working just below the surface. We, we are accomplishing a tremendous amount in these verses. Civilization literally is being built on the backs of these people, but, but there is a brokenness that we can't seem to shake. 
And that's because we're, we're not just autonomous, as we've seen, we're not, and we're not just accomplished. Sadly, we're also accursed. That's the third thing we are. And the way we get to see that accursedness is through a charming man named Lamech. So we meet Lamech in uh, verse 18, verse 19, right around there, and Moses gives us a quick detail about him before moving on. So it says this. Let me see if I can butcher these names. Mahujel fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Just kind of drops that in there and moves on. Now, you might get your pen out if you're a, like a, I write in my Bible person. And you just might go in the margin of your Bible. And right there around verse 19, right where it mentions uh, Lamech and that detail about it, you might just write this. This, was a, this is the way my, my mentor helped me kind of remember who this guy is and put him in a, a helpful category. You might just write right there, Earth's first player. If you can get that in the margin, that would be, that'd be great for you. I think it would be helpful to remember. That's, that is who this guy is. He is the first player we've met in the Bible. Look at you, Lamech. He is a bigamist. He has two wives. And as you read that in in chapter 4, if you feel the, oh, when you came across that, that is appropriate. You should, because just two chapters before, we got God's vision for what marriage should be. And it ain't that, right? It is not, and Lamech had two wives, Ada and Zillah. That's not how it should go. He's a player, so we should expect this, I suppose. And consequently, we're about to find out he's also a songwriter, too. Songwriters, man, the worst. (laughs) Just like when Adam meets Eve, so think back to to Genesis 2, and uh, he breaks out into the first song in the Bible, which isn't it interesting? The very first word spoken by mankind in Scripture is a song. It's poetry. Right? And, and he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So Adam just breaks into song when he sees Eve. Well, Lamech, not to be outdone, takes up the challenge himself and gets his poetry game on as the player that he is. And his song is uh, something. It's something else. Uh, ladies, if you ever meet a man like this, you are in for a treat, girls. Uh, just listen to the words of this poem, and you just tell me your heart doesn't melt. It begins, Ada and Zilla. First off, can we agree, if you really want to capture the heart of your bride, make sure to name two people, not just one. <laughs> just, it really does it. It really does it. Uh, and then the tenderness. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Guys, notepads out. Listen, if you, if you want to get her attention, make sure to demand it right up front. It just, it, oh, and, and another huge thing. Definitely make sure to speak of yourself in the third person. It just has a way of melting a girl's heart. Susan, listen to my voice. You wife of Bill. Didn't that feel, did you feel that? It's almost sultry. That was, that was special. And what does he want to say to them? Oh, nothing. What does he, what does he want? Nothing. Just a little death threat. Right? I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So unlike Cain, who at least had to like wrestle a bit and then give in to the desire to kill, here we have a guy who kills a young man and then brags about it. He puts it in his love song. He says, I'm a killer, girls, so watch out. That's what he says. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamex is 77-fold. What I want you to know is, ain't nobody going to tread on me. Right? That's what I'm saying. I just want you to know that. This guy. This guy. 
Also, you gotta love the fact that in Lamech's poem, he mentions himself seven times in his love poem to his, to his girlies, right? Because nothing sweeps a gal off her feet quite like you talking about you. You know what I mean? Just, mm. Did you feel that? It's so good. I'm being ridiculous. Uh, pray for me. But what we are seeing here is the curse of Genesis 3.16 coming to life before our eyes. Do you remember one of the elements of the curse when God brought the curse on Eve? What he said, your husband will rule over you. Here we're seeing the husband using his power to rule and dominate over his wife. That's what we're seeing, wives, by the way, because this is an abandonment of the monogamy set out in Genesis 2, right? This is, this is bigamy now. This is polygamy. We have sexual subjugation. And then we have murder, but it's not just murder. It's, it's bragging and boasting about murder. And then he's threatening violence to women. I mean, this man, Lamech, is a boastful, narcissistic, bigamist murderer. And it's interesting that we learn about him immediately after we learn about all the accomplishments of his people. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that funny? Why would you do that? Why, what, what is God showing us? We're advancing, but we're crumbling. We're building, but we're bent. We can tame the elements, but we can't tame our heart. It just won't work. This is what we're like outside of God's presence. We're autonomous. I'll do whatever I want. We're accomplished. Look what I can do. But we're also accursed. Do you see that? We're accursed. Something's missing, and the band-aid of our achievements isn't helping it. And that's because culture cannot cure our culture. It cannot cure our culture. We think it can. We have always thought this. We're in Genesis chapter 4, and this is the play. But it, but it doesn't just stop in Genesis 4. We've always been like this. This is the way people think. This is what we preached to ourselves during the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th, 19th century. That, that we can fix ourselves with a little innovation, a little science, a little technology. We can produce a better version of us, right? But how did that go? How did that go for us? Let me give you just one uh, or two examples from that era. Uh, so take the, it's a, the turn of the 19th century, and there's a new technology that's, that's invented called the cotton gin by Eli Whitney, right? And uh, I, I don't know if you know what a cotton gin is, but it's a, it's a mechanism that sort of filters out all the impurities and all those little prickly things in the cotton, and it allows you to batch and bundle more cotton than you ever could with just human hands. So it's an amazing, really, really helpful piece of technology. There's our technology. Then in 1820, something happens. Uh, it's the end of the Napoleonic era. We're going to get historical for just a bit. Uh, so th that means this. England becomes the dominant economic superpower in the world. Now, this is a big deal uh, because now for the first time, England, and, and by extension the world, has demand for cotton uh, and the capital to get it, right? So now we have technology. We have demand. 1830 shows up, and uh, our president, Andrew Jackson, empties the south of the Cherokee Indian, forcing them from the southeast United States uh, up into Oklahoma Territory. We learned about it in high school, the, the horrible Trail of Tears, right? That takes place, which opens up all of a sudden access to this incredibly rich black soil in the ground there, soil that is totally 
ripe for planting cotton. So now we have technology, we've got demand, we've got resources, what's left to get? We need labor. And so what did we do? We took slavery in 1820 from 900,000 people in the US to over three million people in just 40 years. We turned our technology, meant for human flourishing, into a way to subjugate human beings, into a, a mechanism for human oppression. This was not in spite of our brilliance. This was not in spite of our technology. This was because of our brilliance, because of our technology. Culture cannot cure our culture. You fast forward 100 years, and we got new problems, right? Because maybe, maybe the problem was we just weren't educated enough. We just weren't sharp enough. We need to learn a few more things, get ourselves together, and then we'll go on to do bigger and brighter things. But what did the 20th century show us? You know who the most educated people on planet Earth were in the early to middle part of the 20th century? It was the Nazis. And they used that brilliance and that education to slaughter six million Jews, among others. Culture cannot cure our culture. We have tried and we've tried and we've tried, but we can't fix it. Just under the surface of our accomplishment is accursedness. We're broken. We try the same thing today. This is, this is how us modern folks think today. You, you remember Silicon Valley told us this 30 years ago. They said, hey, we've got this new thing coming. It's called the internet. <laughs> this thing, guys, we're going to give it to all of you. And it is going to solve everything. You know all the discord that you guys feel out there in life? Well, you're going to get on the internet, and it's going to bring us together. We're going to be connected. It's going to be magic. And what did we get? Twitter. <laughs> the saddest place on earth. And we got the highest rates of child and teen depression our nation has ever seen. And we got 35% of all internet downloads being pornographic content. That is over one third of everything downloaded on the internet today is porn. They promised they would increase productivity. Remember that? Well, with the speed of computers and, and internet technology, I mean, you'll be able to, to, to do so much more. So you, you'll be able to work so much less. And man, hadn't it been great how little we've worked? This is so great, we're just laying around all the time. No, workaholism, what? It exploded because we figured out, oh, we can get a lot more done. And if I just stay on the grind, I can double my sales. I can triple my profits, right? And we just launched ourselves into burnout. It didn't work, the experiment didn't work. Culture cannot cure culture. There's something bent in us, something broken in us. And the solve is not our culture. Let me make it personal for just a second because we're talking about big, things up here, because there's some of you here today who, you, and you know this, if you're honest with yourself, you're, you're living away from the presence of God. You know it. You, you are not living before the face of God, and instead of trying to pursue that relationship and, and seek him out, you're trying to synthesize this, I'm okay, by building your little city. 
right? Uh, who of us has, has, does not do that to some degree? We, we do this, right? And, and you're, you're looking to your accomplishments, your achievements, your awesome family, or maybe getting an, enough money to finally feel good about yourself, or maybe you're incredibly moral. Maybe you're here at church today so that you can check off that ever-elusive box of I'm a good Christian girl, I'm a good Christian guy. Right? I've done the things, I've, I've built up my city, right? But if you're honest, something's still not right, right? There may be achievement, but the curse, it's right there, you cannot escape it. What you need today is not a city, you need a savior. That's what you need, you need a relationship because culture cannot cure you. Being cultured cannot cure you. Your accomplishments will not heal you. We have a deeper problem than that. And the one person, the only person who can actually deal with the curse is Christ. That's it. Just Jesus. And though it looks like in Cain's line, mankind has totally forgotten this. That's the scary thing about this text, isn't it? You read this and you're like, is this where we're going? I mean, we're just spiraling into oblivion and it's just all arrogant, boastful, bigamistic, murderous, prideful humanity just multiplying themselves forever, though it looks like we've forgotten that truth. In God's kindness, he preserves a group of people who don't forget. Because the text tells us in verse 25 that Adam knew his wife again. Now we've left Cain, but we're going back to his dad, Adam. And he knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring of Abel, for, uh, for Cain killed him. Now this is interesting because the last time that that word offspring was used in Genesis, do you know where it was? you know where it popped up, that word offspring? It shows up in Genesis 3.15, the great gospel presentation of the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what, what is Eve saying when she has Seth? She's saying maybe he's the serpent crusher. Maybe he's the one who's gonna set this right because this is broken and breaking. A lot's happening out there, we're accomplishing much, but I know that my God promised me the solution would not come through innovation and culture and accomplishment and technology. My God said it would come through an offspring. It would come through someone he's sending. My God is providing the solution, not me. And maybe that's it, maybe it's it. You hear that same sentiment being echoed just uh, the next chapter over when it starts talking about Noah. Noah's dad says, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. Do you hear it? Maybe it's him. Maybe Noah's the one. Maybe, maybe God's going to provide the solution for this curse through him. But do you see there's this anticipation building. God's gonna send someone. God, God is my hope. I'm not looking to me. There's this line of people, not coming from Cain now this time, but coming from Seth, who are not looking to themselves to fix themselves. They are looking to God. In fact, that's what we see by the end of this chapter. The one bright light in all of chapter four is I think this verse, the last verse of the chapter to Seth, also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, 
people began to call on the name of the Lord. You heard a lot of stuff that Cain's people did, but they didn't do any of that. And all of a sudden, a new line has started through Adam, to Seth, to Enosh, and then, at that time, men start calling on the name of the Lord. They remember the promise. There are people who God is preserving, who God is awakening to see him as their help, not themselves. God's being worshiped again. And through this line of people, Adam, Seth, then Noah, then Abraham, then David, through this line of people comes the rescuer himself, Jesus. So they are not only acknowledging God as the one who's doing it, but God is using them to bring about the very means of salvation for the world. And with his death and resurrection, God is saying this, your victory against that curse that you feel, and don't we all feel it? My goodness, if we're just real with ourselves, we just live in a broken world and we are a broken people. Your victory against that curse hanging over, you will not come from you bettering yourself. Please hear this, it will not come from you trying a little harder today from you going, oh man, that sermon was good, I feel convicted, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really be obedient today. It will not come through that. That's simply culture trying to solve culture. It's simply accomplishment trying to cure the curse. It will not work. Your only hope, believer, unbeliever in this room, your only hope is a savior. Your only hope is the snake crusher. Your only hope is the one who did it for us, who died the death we couldn't and rose from the grave for us. That's, that is our only hope today. And if you'll trust him, you will be able to live again Coram Deo, before the face of God, which is exactly how you were made to live. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks for your company today. We give you thanks for your precious word and we give you thanks for the snake crusher. God, I will admit, I so quickly try to figure out ways that I could better myself, that I could, that I could synthesize living before the face of God without actually doing it. Maybe if I just read my Bible a little bit longer, pray a little bit harder, go to church a little bit more often. God, we're all so tempted to do that, and some of us have dove headlong into it. And I pray right now you would work on hearts of, I, I don't know who it is, but whoever it is in this room who is, who is clinging to accomplishment, not recognizing that it can't cure the curse, God, instead, would you help them cling to the Christ? Would you open up our hands around our achievements and help us to run to the Savior today? He is our only hope in life and in death. So God, please, please be kind to us in that way. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you that you did not leave us without a remnant. You did not leave us without people who are chasing you and you did not leave us without the Messiah. You sent him. And we're so thankful to be on this side of the cross. We can look back on Genesis and go, I, I have what they saw. I have him. So may that make us sing a little louder. Worship you harder. God, we want to enjoy the access we have to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.